0: everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. It's been a while since I recorded uh, an episode of Wayward, mainly because I've just been busy and I haven't gotten around to it and it's taking up all my time just to stay on top of my reading and reviews for, you know, the podcast part of the podcast. But I finally thought I'd sit down and record another episode and I'll give you a little recap of what happened in the previous chapters as well in case you have forgotten because it has been quite a while. Also, let me know, drop me a comment get on Twitter, let me know however you can. If you'd be interested in another series of audiobook recordings, I guess, of my other book, Dead to Rights, which is an occult British police mystery, but also a lesbian romance. So um, let me know if you'd be interested in reading uh, or hearing me read that book. You can buy it now on Amazon, it's 99p, but if you'd like me to do a little audiobook version for you, I could do that if, you know, I find the time to do that in between everything else. So last time we left Michaela sleeping in Wayward House, which is the name of the abandoned house just off the Bathsby University campus, where she's been taken by Cray and introduced to a number of characters, chiefly Ilex and Chronicle, who are sort of the higher ups in terms of the gang like organisation and the other grunts who are similar to Cray in status, who are Campion and Nara. She also met Sophia, who is the ringleader, high witch, whatever you want to call her. And she was told about the other coven in Bristol, which is where a recent recruit, White Hart, has been sent. And she was sort of allowed to get some rest, have a little nap. And then the next day they're going to take her to use a payphone on campus so that she can contact her family. And that's where we meet up with her again in Chapter 7. I need to add a trigger warning for this episode because there's some stuff in it which kind of implies some dubious consent going on, specifically in the ritual scene, not in a sexual way, but you'll see when you get to it. Um, but there is some sort of dubious consent going on, and also some blood drinking takes place in this chapter, which I do not advocate. Not very hygienic, not very good for you, but it is dramatic as hell, so that's why it's in the story. I wake up a couple of hours later when Nora puts a mug of tea down beside my head. "'Morning!' again, she smiles, sitting down on the edge of the mattress. "'Hey!' I sit up, feeling dry-mouthed and headachy, that after-sleepover feeling that demands tea and sugar. "'I'll walk you over to the payphone in a bit. Everyone else is on their way to bed,' Nara says. She hands me a plastic-wrapped flapjack. "'Breakfast?' We split the flapjack and I drink the tea, which is hot and sweet, the way Mum always makes it for my breakfast. Nara and I go downstairs, through the empty beer can strewn living room and out of the window.' I feel weirdly normal, like I've just woken up at Tasha's after a party, and not in an abandoned house in the middle of a field. The sky outside no longer looks like it's been brushed over with dirty water. The sun is up, and the surrounding trees look far less creepy than they had done earlier. We walk back through the village, this time taking a slightly different route, directly to campus along a long concrete drive dotted with cow shit and cattle grids. The fields on either side of us are flat, and a strong wind whips across them, making my hair flutter into my mouth and eyes. There's no one around right now, Nora tells me. Earliest lectures are at nine and they've already started. Anyone who doesn't have one is still in bed, you can bet on it. She takes me through a gate and over the road onto campus. Without hesitation, she jumps up the steps to the library, opening the door and holding it for me. Inside, it's warm and smells like new carpet. I feel instantly scruffy and uncomfortable. It's too much like school. There are terminals for taking out books and a hallway that stretches in either direction, but Nara walks straight to a door marked Refreshment Zone. On the other side is a bulletin board covered in posters, a payphone and two vending machines. While Nara inspects the contents of the vending machines, I pop coins into the phone and dial my home number. It rings. On and on and on, until I think it's never going to stop. The sound of it starts to make my buzz. Then Mum picks up. Hello? Mum? It's me. I say. Silence. Is dad at work? Yes. She sounds cautious, like she's not sure who I am. Mum, please let me come home, I beg. She sighs. Michaela. Tasha wouldn't let me stay, and Chloe isn't home. I'm on the street, you have to let me come back. I'm sure you can find somewhere else to stay. There's nowhere, unless you want me in a shelter with all the druggies and piss-stinking drunks. You're on drugs, Michaela, mum says pointedly. No, I'm not, It was just some weed and I'm not smoking it anymore. You said that last time. Mum, I promise. You said that too. Mum, please. I can feel panic starting to crawl up my throat, cold fingernails scratching at my heart. I can't do this. I can't. There's a long silence. You're going to have to, Mum says. And it's like all the shutters have snapped down, blocking out the sun. You made this happen. You pushed us and I think it would be best if you didn't try to see us, at least for a while. I can't believe I'm hearing her right. She's my mum and she doesn't want to see me. She doesn't want anything to do with me. Neither of them do. I don't know what to say. There's just nothing in my head. Only the circular endless thought. I need to go home. They don't want me to come home. I need to get home. The silence makes the buzzing of the line come through loud and clear. After a few seconds of just our breathing, mum says, I have to go now, Michaela. And she hangs up just like that. I stand there holding the receiver, the dial tones screaming out of it. Nara comes over after a few moments. She takes the phone away from my hand and sets it back in place. There's a chink as my leftover change drops out of the machine. An acorn falls out of the covered tray, dropping to the ground and rolling across the floor. I look at it and it makes about as much sense as the words still ringing in my ears. Nara touches my shoulder and I can smell biscuit on her breath. Are you okay? My voice is all stoppered up, so I shake my head and feel tears tremble free from my eyes. Nara puts her arms around me, squeezing me tightly as I cry and make truly embarrassing, snuffly, throaty sounds. It's going to be okay, she says, patting my back gently. Let's just get you home, okay? I'm sure one of the others will come up with something. I really want to believe her, to believe that there's some magic trick that'll get my old life back, but right now I don't think there's a spell in the world that can make my mum love me again. Chapter 8. Nara and I walk the road back to Wayward House. Before, it had seemed a reasonably short, but now it seems to stretch on like a mirage. Outwardly, I nod and force a smile at Nara's words, my feet moving one after the other, on and on down the road. Inside, I'm spinning. My mum doesn't want me. My dad doesn't want me. Neither of them care where I end up. I could be in a shop doorway right now, for all they know. They'd happily put me out on the street, like a pet they've become tired of that had scratched up the furniture too many times to be tolerated anymore. They were my parents. They were supposed to love me no matter what. If I got pregnant or kicked out of school, bullied or diagnosed with some horrible disease, they were supposed to be there, taking me to prenatal classes or pushing me in my wheelchair. They decided to have me, hadn't they? It wasn't like I'd chosen to be born. As we walk, the wind whips into my face and stings the tear tracks on my cheeks, freezing the wet tip of my nose. I feel the hopeful fuzzy thing in my chest die. My parents don't want me. Fine. I don't want them. If they thought, if they fucking thought for a second that I was going to come begging or end up in some reeking hostel just because they weren't looking out for me, well, screw them. I wasn't going to let that happen to me. I wasn't going to give up. I was going to get myself a new family and all the perks that came with it. Nara touches my elbow and I realise that I've stopped on one side of a flooded cattle grid my hand on the edge of the metal gate beside it. Michaela? I'm thinking, I say, and Nara stays quiet, looking at me with huge, sympathetic eyes. I think that maybe I want to stay with you, with all of you here. Of course you can, Nara smiles. We wouldn't just expect you to leave, not now. We start to walk again, and even though I'm still cold inside and out, I feel a flickering of satisfaction. I have a place to stay. I'm fine. My parents might still exist in that boring little house, imagining the disgrace i've fallen into well let them wonder i won't be seeing them again nara speaks breathlessly hard to hear over the wind i'll ask sophia and we can initiate you tonight we'll have a party and everything oh you're gonna love it it's so much fun the weird thing is i believe her i couldn't give one flying fuck for all this witchy nonsense but a party fun a few hours ago i thought i'd never have fun again what makes my decision all the sweeter is Cray's face when we get back to the house and nara tells him that i'm staying he smiles at me and I grin back. There's still a punch in my chest when I think about the phone call, but I'm quick to push it aside. They don't care. I don't care. Most of the others are asleep now, having been up all night. I'm wide awake, though, not used to their upside-down way of life. Nara and Kray are apparently too excited to sleep, so we sit in the living room, burning candles against the gloom, even though the sun is well and truly up outside. Nara drags out an old set of Monopoly, and we play half-heartedly until I put up a hotel and no one can remember the rules for what happens next. Nara cuts me a look, one eyebrow raised, before she gives a big fake yawn and heads off to bed. Cray looks like he knows what she's up to, but he helps me to pack up the board and the paper money. Then he puts the radio on quietly, and we lie down on the cushions scattered on the floor, smoking. My stomach flips over and over, like a restless sleeper on a hot night. I'm glad you're staying, he starts off. I mean, it sucks that your parents won't let you come home, but... I'd miss you if you left. I don't care about them, I'd rather be here. Cray sighs. You don't have to be like that. We understand, we've all been through it, and it hurts like hell when you have to leave your family. I stay silent, unwilling to crack open the wall around me. Cray puts his arm over my shoulders, a cigarette still smouldering between his fingers. You'll get over it. Eventually it stops getting to you, you just learn not to think about it. I don't want to talk about it, so... I asked a question that's been on the back of my mind since Craig first told me about the way the group worked. What's going to happen with the initiation? It's not too scary, Craig chuckles. You get a new name and become formally joined to the group. What will my name be? Whatever Sophia thinks it should be. She picks them. I still feel on edge about the whole thing, worrying about what I'm getting into, but I'm already down this rabbit hole and there's no going back. My parents have made themselves pretty clear about that. Of course I could just wait and go and see Chloe when she comes back from her trip. Somehow that idea seems to drift further and further into the past with each second I spend lying with Cray. Chloe, Tasha, my parents, they're all part of a life that used to be mine but isn't anymore. Instead it's this weird squat, the fairy tale stories of magic and secret ceremonies that are growing more real for me as the sun travels across the sky, bringing the night and my initiation. I walk back into Sophia's room well after dark. It looks different now. Less like a goth shop and more like a scene from one of those films where the detective infiltrates a baby-killing, snake-vomiting cult and everyone takes their hoods off so you can see it's the paediatrician from the village in the beginning or that the head cultist was the detective's mentor all along. A shiver runs through my stomach. Everyone is wearing hoods. From the numbers, I guess that Cray and all the other grunts are in the black cloaks, kneeling in a circle on the floor, each holding a candle. Chronicle and Ilex are standing up, wearing matching green cloaks. Chronicle has a kitchen knife in one hand. Alex is holding a wine glass. It's the sight of the knife that makes me pause, standing on the outer edge of a circle of candles that burn in cups and on plates and piles of bricks. Sophia, or at least the purple-cloaked shape of Sophia, appears between Chronicle and Alex, holding out her hands. It's all right, McKenna. We're friends here. Cray looks up then, and his hood tips back a little, showing me his crooked grin. These are the same people I'd been drinking with only that morning. A few bad Macbeth props didn't make them any more dangerous than they'd been then, right? Campion is still really Margaret, Cray is still Byron, and this room is still a squat full of kids, just like me. I step into the circle and kneel down in front of Sophia, as Cray had told me I'd have to do. Do you come here of your own free will, into this circle of the faithful? Yes, I answer. Though really, what other choice do I have? It's this or the street. And do you swear to keep our secrets? and to follow the rules set down by our pagan ancestors. To know, to will, to dare, and to keep silent. I do. Sophia takes the knife from Chronicle and points it up at the dingy ceiling. Creatures of air, invention and guile, I invoke you. Join us and our wayward sister this night. I almost roll my eyes. I feel like I'm in an amateur production of the craft, or some teenage horror thing that Tasha made me watch. Outside, the wind slams something against the wall of the house. Something plastic, maybe a chair. A quick, nasty flare of wind cuts through the gaps in the boarded windows. The candles flutter. I start to feel a little shivery, and not just because of the cold. Creatures of earth, strength and life, Campion surprises me, and I almost jump at the sound of her voice. I invoke you. Join us and our wayward sister this night. Outside, a tree moans in the wind. Creatures of water, emotion and silence, I invoke you. Join us and our wayward sister this night, says Crow. Rain splatters against the windows, sounding like fingernails tapping the glass. Creatures of fire, passion and power, I invoke you. Join us and our wayward sister this night, Nara finishes. I really hope that it's just my imagination, but I swear I can see the candle flames grow a bit larger. Alec steps forward and kneels, holding up the wine glass. Sophia turns the knife downwards, dipping the point into the glass. Goddess and God, life-giver, Earth-mother. I'm almost embarrassed for them. They sound like stupid hippies from TV. Finally, Chronicle comes forward, lifting a bottle of wine and filling the glass. Alex and Chronicle sit down, leaving Sophia with the knife in one hand, the wine glass in the other. Come forward. I take a step, and outside the wind and rain rattle the windows. I'm nervous now, but only because of what Cray told me has to happen next. The rite of blood. Sophia raises the knife, and I hold out my hand. It's just a little cut, a little blood for their gothic obsession. If it puts a roof over my head, fine, I can take it. The blade slides across my palm, and it hurts. It hurts a lot. Sophia lets the blood from my hand drip into the wine, and the burning pain quickly loses its edge. I'm too distracted by what she's doing now. Sophia lifts the glass to her lips and takes a sip. Disgusting. I shudder. She's drinking my blood. How am I supposed to react? Sophia raises the knife again, but this time she cuts her thumb, adding her blood to the wine. She passes the glass and the knife on to Ilex, who takes a drink and then sets the glass down to lay the knife on his own hand. That's when I work out that Crane left a bit out when he told me about the ceremony. They are all going to drink from the cup, and they are all going to add their own blood to it. I watch the cup go round the circle, my mouth dry and sour with dread and disgust. This is mental. It's probably really dodgy drinking someone's blood, let alone lots of homeless people's blood. God knows what kind of germs are swimming around in that wine. The cup comes around the circle, brimming with crimson as it makes its way back to me. Nara presses it into my hands, a line of blood running up her arm from the cut on her hand. My fingers are so reluctant to hold the glass that I'm worried I'll drop it. It probably won't change anything. They're going to make me do this. I look down into the depths of the wine glass. It's only like slurping the last of a sticky bottle of corner shop lonk. that's been shared around the group a few times. Only, of course, it's not. As I drink it, all I can taste is blood, followed by the sour kick of the cheap booze. Sophia starts to say something, and the others join in. I can't focus on the words. It's like bats and other shadowy things are flocking around me, making things blurry and jumpy. I shake my head, trying to get rid of the rushing sound in my ears. Looking up, I see that Sophia is looking right at me. Her mouth moves in a word. Stone. My knees buckle and I fall to the floor. Dun, dun, dun. It's cliffhanger time. I Don't worry, I will put up chapter 9 and 10 soon, so you will of course find out what's happening. Obviously this chapter is the beginning of a lot more of the witchy happenings in the story and a lot more of the kind of dark and weird turns that the story is going to take. So I hope you enjoyed that part and the coming parts that I'll get on with putting together now, I promise you. And if you want to let me know how you feel about this chapter or the possibility of me serialising another one of my books, do let me know using the contact information in the description box, or you can just add a comment on this video. Up to you. In the meantime, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!